0: The little lamb to the shepherd boy. Do you hear what I? I really am a mean and despicable creature at heart, you know. You may wish to adjust the dial. You're currently tuned into the wrong station. This is one my grandmother told me. She went to live in England for a time when she was young. I don't think she liked it very much. A lot of Anglo-Canadians, especially in her generation, have this idea of England in their heads as this wellspring of culture and sophistication. This lost home. And then you get there and find... a pinched, mean-spirited, bigoted country, rotten to the roots. Everything you hate about life in Canada... None of the parts you really like. She never said this to me, of course. She's still a royalist at heart, even after everything. Still loyal to the idea of England she got from Shakespeare and a selective reading of Dickens. But listening to her talk about those years she lived there, you get little glimpses of how unwelcome she must have felt. A colonial girl, and with an ethnic name, no less. I I think the people there, even other children, barely spoke to her. I think the only friend she had in that big old house was the dog. I don't have a good description of the house for you. I filled it in from my own imagination with bits of old Toronto houses, Hill House Gothic mansions, and Doctor Who Christmas special Victoriana. I'm sure the image in my head looks nothing like the reality. But there was a dining room with old wooden chairs where they ate breakfast every morning. And whenever it was just the kids, something curious would happen. From time to time, the oldest boy in the house would get up from the table and walk around to the door which led to the hallway. He'd open it, hold it open for a second, and then let it shut. After that, he'd quietly return to his chair and continue eating breakfast. I think it speaks to the kind of place she had in that house that my grandmother never asked about this little ritual or why the room would feel cold each time the boy sat back down again. The house was the kind of big country manse where they held parties several times a year, parties where the women would be wearing silk gowns and elbow-length gloves, and the men black tailcoats and court shoes. Children, of course, were not permitted, but there was a gallery overlooking the entrance hall, and the children would sit with their legs dangling down through the railing. As long as they didn't make any noise, they were allowed to watch the guests come in, allowed to marvel at the extravagant dresses, the elegant dancing, The gallery was short, so my grandmother, of course, was relegated to the top of the stairs instead. The dog would sit beside her. He, at least, was a large, comfortable country animal with a strong smell. Something she noticed every time she sat there watching guests arrive for a ball was that from time to time the dog would lean into her and shiver. Christmas... The last Christmas she was in the house before she returned home in January was an especially grand affair. There were important people in attendance, lesser royals or cabinet ministers or something. Bastards, probably. But the house was full, and the men's boutonnieres all bloomed, and light blazed from the women's diamond tiaras, and that entire evening, as my grandmother sat on the stairwell, the dog was pressed into her, trembling the whole night. And its eyes wide and its tongue panting as if the poor creature had been running a race instead of sitting quietly at the topmost stair. It was only after that night, and probably only because she was leaving, that my grandmother dared to finally ask the question one morning at breakfast Why is it that when we're sitting on the gallery at a party, the dog does that thing where he leans into you and trembles? A silence fell. The other children all put down their spoons and looked at her like she was stupid. And after a moment, the oldest boy said, Well, when that happens, that's just the old people heading down to the party. And as she was digesting that, he stood, walked around to the other side of the room and opened the hallway door. He waited for a moment, and then the room grew cold. Then he let the door fall shut and return to his breakfast, while whatever he had allowed into the room just sat there with them. And... And when you open the door like that, my grandmother managed to ask at last, is that the old people too? A little scoff. Of course. The rest of the meal they ate in silence like good children do. They were, after all, observed. My grandmother, nowadays, is a very grand old lady, more British than the British, as they say, but I know that's all really just a facade. Who she actually is, is the person who cackles with her theater friends about old gossip, who taught me all my first swear words, who always made me a soft-boiled egg with toast soldiers for breakfast as a kid and the yoke always perfectly runny. I still think of her sometimes in that old house in the old country, sitting on the stair and not seeing what those other children saw. They were all watching the old people dance and whirl among the pale shadows of the living. She was only paying attention to the frightened animal beside her. I love her very much for that, "'Holly. You're familiar with it? I trust. I hope. "'You'll know, then, the one thing everybody knows about holly is that it's got spiky leaves. "'And this one thing that everybody knows is, of course, a lie. "'If you ever collect a sprig of holly from the topmost boughs of the tree, "'you'll find the leaves are oval. Perfectly smooth, in fact.' It's only when the plant is threatened, say, by a ruminant animal, that it turns on the gene for spiky leaves. Suddenly, those smooth edges deform into bitter points. Dr. Rudolph Carson was disturbed by this phenomenon. It's not right that the plant should be able to learn, he would tell his colleagues. In fact, as he aged and grew more alienated from his family, Dr. Carson would become increasingly obsessed with this idea. "'You don't understand,' he'd tell his colleagues. "'If the plant can learn, that means it can learn how to deal with us. "'That means it's a threat.' "'But his colleagues would just laugh him off in increasingly uncomfortable tones of voice. "'Soon Dr. Carson's reputation suffered, and the university quietly encouraged him to retire. "'That's when he decided to take matters into his own hands. "'A series of holly bushes in the area began to mysteriously catch fire.' The cause was obviously arson, but nobody could think of a motive for the crime. Dr. Carson became quietly smug with his house plants. He had committed a string of, he was convinced, perfect vigilante crimes. Then, around 1 a.m. on Christmas morning, well after the last stragglers had left Midnight Mass, Dr. Carson found himself standing before the huge old holly tree out front of the church. He was wearing a battered old Mackinac jacket. "'and carrying a sloshing jerry-can of gasoline. "'As he approached, the tree began to shiver. Ha! "'Feeling scared?' he asked. "'But the tree did not answer. "'In words. "'You see, there was more than just one gene "'the holly-tree had hidden in its back pocket, "'and as Dr. Carson approached, "'he realized the error of his ways.' For this tree, the big one out front of the church, had done more than turn its leaves spiky. It had turned them into a gun. One shot rang out into the perfect silence of Christmas morning. At sunrise, the townspeople found Dr. Carson lying dead in the snow. His blood, the perfect, simply perfect red of holly berries thank god for the go train thank god for reasonably affordable public transit without it it would have been a panicky four-hour drive instead it was two hours two hours they could spend hashing out the secrets in michelle's family paul eagerly listened to all the ancient grudges and cruelties wounds given healed and then reopened He'd resisted it at first, but now, more than a year into their relationship, he could admit that Michelle brought out the gossipy bitch in him. And he loved her for it. They slept the last forty minutes. Michelle's dad, Robert, picked them up from the go station. He had a surprise for them. "'Hi, sweetheart,' he said, giving Michelle a firm hug. "Was the trip all right?' "'Totally. Much better than driving.' "'Good, good. Paul, great to see you again.' Robert reached out to shake Paul's hand, but as he did so, there was a brown blur of movement as something leapt down from the back seat. Paul blinked, bringing his hands up like a boxer ready to strike, then looked down to where two paws rested just above his navel. "'Oh, sorry I scared you,' said Robert, reaching for the collar. "'Still a pup.' "'He's so cute,' said Michelle. "'So this adorable fluffball is the surprise?' "'Yep,' said Robert.' Your ma and I finally pulled the trigger. Decided we'd been empty nesters long enough. His name's Junior. The guy we got him from said he's a setter mix. Paul didn't say anything. He knew what he wanted to say. He knew that if he said it, Michelle and Robert would just laugh. He knew it was a ridiculous thing to say anyway, so what would be the point in saying it? But all the same, he thought it and once he thought it he couldn't stop thinking it and what he thought was that isn't a dog it wasn't anything specific about the way junior looked or acted he couldn't point to anything like two heads or a fifth leg paul simply knew in the same way animals know not to eat certain poisonous berries in the front seat robert and michelle were chatting about plans for christmas dinner "'Junior was laying on an old towel next to him. "'Paul kept his eyes out the passenger window. "'Was Junior a coyote? A fox? "'No, nothing so simple. "'It was exotic. "'And based on the prickling on the back of Paul's neck, "'it might very well be dangerous. "'The party was in full swing when they arrived. "'Junior slinked off between the legs of Michelle's family members "'and was lost from sight.' Paul let out a long exhale. Robert took Paul's coat, as Michelle was immediately mobbed by a pack of cousins from out of town. Paul winked at Michelle, who gave him an almost imperceptible eye roll, both of them knowing it would be at least fifteen minutes before Michelle could escape. Paul grinned. He loved how fluid their nonverbal communication had become. He edged his way around the cousins, hoping they wouldn't notice. Paul didn't have anything against them. He just wasn't in the mood to stand quietly while thirty years of inside jokes and memories flew over his head. Michelle's family was welcoming, but in the end they were her family. He made his way to the dining room table, which was the serving bar for now. He poured himself a little gin and tonic with a lot of lemon juice. When he turned back to the party, he met Junior's heavy stare across the room. Paul nearly dropped the drink, managing to only spill a bit on his pants— Half in the bag already, eh, Paul? said a large, floored man Paul identified as Uncle Bill. Paul smiled sheepishly, hiding the rising tide of fear in his gut. Wish I had that excuse, Bill, he replied. He looked back up, but Junior had slinked off to some other part of the house. Paul almost preferred having him close by, in his eyeline. Say, Bill, what do you think of Junior? Junior? Oh, he's a fine animal. Fine animal, said Bill. A setter mix, Robert tells me. Huh. That's interesting, said Paul. Because I actually grew up around setters, and it doesn't look like much of a setter to me. You think, uh, you think maybe Robert got scammed, or maybe it was just an honest mistake? Bill blinked slowly, one eyelid coming down faster than the other, and Paul suddenly realized that he was very drunk. "'I suppose,' said Bill. "Uh, "'Now that I'm looking closer, uh, it doesn't seem quite like a setter. Uh, I can't really put my finger on what it is.' Paul paused, his drink halfway to his mouth, as he felt the hot weight of eyes on the back of his head. He half-turned and caught Junior staring at him from the corner of his eye. There was intelligence behind those eyes. Whatever Junior was— It knew that Paul knew, and it wasn't happy to be found out. "'Maybe not even a dog at all,' said Paul. "'Wolf,' said Bill. "'Fine idea. Uh, Quite fine.' Paul didn't reply, just gulped down the last of his drink and poured another. "'Hey, can I talk to you?' said Michelle. It was hours later, dinner still hadn't been served. Paul wasn't... hammered, but he wasn't too far off from Uncle Bill either. Junior lay asleep near the Christmas tree, his legs sprawled in a way that suggested too many joints. Or perhaps too few. Yeah, what's up, babe? Paul folded his slurring tongue around the words. What's the deal? You've been acting strange since we got here, she said. I know my family can be... a lot... Want to tell me what's up? Uh, you'll laugh, said Paul. You'll think it's crazy. You'll think I'm looking for things to upset myself. Michelle sat and waited. Paul leaned in. It's the dog, he said. It's Junior. They both looked over. Under the Christmas tree, Junior's eyes were wide open, staring right at them. He's not a dog. The two of them watched as Junior stood and bounded over. Paul thought his gait was a perfect mimicry of a happy little pooch, but a mimicry nonetheless. Michelle leaned over and scratched under Junior's chin. It made Paul vaguely queasy to watch. Yeah, I heard you were asking a lot of people about that, said Michelle. I'm not trying to make you do anything, one way or the other, but you know, maybe he'd stop for now. Paul took another long sip of his drink. I guess it's kind of silly, isn't it? said Paul. He didn't look down. He didn't have to to know that Junior was staring at him. Michelle continued. Oh, before I forget, I grabbed my aunt's phone number. You said you were looking for more marketing work, right? said Michelle. Maybe talk to her about that. She handed him the phone number on a slip of paper. Paul nodded vaguely. "'feeling for the first time since they met "'a vast distance between the two of them, "'as if the note was being handed to him "'from another dimension. "'Uh, sure,' said Paul. "'Sorry, I'll straighten up. "'Just nervous, you know?' "'He crushed the phone number in his fist "'and crammed it into his pocket. "'Michelle nodded. "'She ruffled his hair awkwardly "'and rejoined the party. "'Junior stayed, staring at Paul.' who refused to meet his gaze. After a few minutes, Junior left too. And then Paul was all alone. Dinner was finally served. The heavy holiday fare only served to deepen his isolation. Cheery banter had been impossible because of Junior. Now it was impossible because the rush of calories had thickened his tongue and clouded his mind. He could see Michelle sitting near Robert. Junior was at Robert's feet, not begging for scraps, not barking, not being a dog. At least it wasn't staring at Paul anymore. It was staring at Michelle. Paul clenched his fist under the table. Think about Michelle just chatting and laughing, as if nothing was desperately, obviously wrong. He glanced at her hand, where she held a crystal glass of port. What if he told her that all the crystal was leaded, that by drinking from it she was leeching the life from her very bones. Would she spit out a drink? Or would she just act as if nothing was wrong, totally unconcerned by the intimate danger she was inviting into her life, into her family? He couldn't take it any longer. So, really, what breed is your dog? Paul finally blurted in the direction of Robert. Conversation died down for a moment as a few heads turned, all thinking Paul was talking to them. Michelle's head whipped around, her eyes wide. Paul avoided her gaze. ''It's just like you said it was a setter mix or something, but I've been around a lot of setters.'' From the corner of his eye, he could tell Michelle was staring at him. He didn't care. He kept going. He needed to know, needed to get to the bottom of this, needed to... He couldn't help it. His eyes flicked over to her. She wasn't angry. She wasn't giving him a warning glance. No, her pupils were huge. Her jaw was tense. There was a sickly shine on her forehead. She looked... Worried. Paul faltered. Robert and the dog were both looking at him pleasantly from the head of the table. Junior, a little too interested. A little too aware. (laughs) Yep, a setter mix. Beautiful, right? Paul nodded. He looked at Michelle, but she was already chatting animatedly with her aunt, whose head was thrown back in gasping laughter. Nobody was looking at him. Nobody noticed as he excused himself. Nobody noticed as he stepped outside into the cold night. He pulled his vape from his pocket. A slip of paper came out with it, fluttering to the snow. The telephone number Michelle got for him. He picked it up, "'Opened it. "'Only there was no telephone number on it. "'Just four words written in her handwriting. "'I see it, too. "'He looked back to the house, "'saw Michelle was now in the corner with her cousin. "'Junior lounged in the opposite corner, "'sitting on its haunches in a way that made no sense.' Paul breathed out for what felt like the first time that night. At least they had something to talk about on the trip back. Wake up, asswipe. He's mashing his hand against my face, pulling on my ears, sticking his fingers in my eyes and nose. I was having horrible dreams, so I don't mind, but how if i going to tell him that? Fuck you, I say through a mouthful of knuckles. Hey, fuck yourself. I gotta take a leak. I open the eye, he's not currently jabbing. Mark's other hand is tight on the steering wheel. He's not looking at me. His eyes are on the road, dodging debris and the tattered clothes blowing on the wind. Fine, I say, but make it fast. Suspension creaks like an old rockin' chair as we pull off. It's late, but the scrubland of Ontario is pale in the double moonlight. There were five moons yesterday. Who knew how many there'd be tomorrow? Hurry up, idiot. Yeah, yeah, it's all to my dick. Mark finds a desiccated bush and gets to work. Cracked ground soaks up his piss, probably happy for the nitrogen. A light, brighter than any dawn, crests the ridge way over to the north. I gesture silently to my brother. His face turns grim. A trickling sound stops and stays stopped until that light dies down and fades away, traveling into the west. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Back in the car, it's my turn to drive. Final egg. Big brother time. A road I'd driven a million times in my mind since the world ended. I put it out of my head. Mark reclines in his seat. He's asleep instantly. I don't jab him in the eyes as much as I want to. Instead, I flick on the radio and let the static wash over me. Mom and Dad. Mom and Dad. How many times have Mark and me skipped the holidays? Shit. Probably would have shown up one of those times if we'd known this was around the corner. Put up with the sniping, drinking, the fist fights, the big speeches about how I never amounted to nothing. Nothing good, anyway. Then again, what would being around that have gotten me? At best, a black eye. Even odds if it was from mom or dad. Then, angels and shit started descending from the vault of heaven, and it starts to give you. I don't know. Perspective? Mark talked me into it. His last stint in jail, there was a shrink who talked a lot about perspective. Got Mark reading books. Or articles, anyway. I stayed out of jail. Just barely. That's the way it was in our neighborhood. The older brothers are under a microscope from the moment the dog pulls them out. They learn to sneak out. They learn to bend the rules that can be bent. They learn to use leverage to keep certain things off the official record. That's why my credit score wasn't completely in the shitter. But the baby brothers, golden children, spoiled rotten. Spoiled so bad they think they can sell phony Louis Vuitton next to the high school and not get popped. And does Mark learn? Fuck no. That's why he's serving three years. I assume the sentence is still on. Not like the cops let a perp walk off just because it's the apocalypse. Something must have happened. Yeah, maybe the guards got raptured. Either way, Mark shows up in my apartment 4 a.m. yesterday... ...yammering about seeing Mom and Dad for the holidays... ...how it might be the last chance we get. It's the first time I'd seen him in 18 months. First time we talked in two years. And... Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like I was saying before. Angels and shit. Gives you perspective. We're into the city proper now and I've never seen the place so deserted. Nobody on the sidewalk, all the stores closed... The only place I see people is when we pass the church on Walnut Avenue, packed at the gills with repentant sinners singing hymns. As we pass, I see something high in the sky and pull onto the sidewalk, doing my best impression of an abandoned car. A minute later, a seraph swoops down, singing holy, 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 loud enough to knock the rear bumper clean off. I know it's a seraph because all those fuckers have six wings, two in the back like normal, then two in place of arms and two in place of legs. They fly in like a kind of corkscrew, rotating as the wind catches each of their wings at a different angle, a tornado of feathers and God's brilliance. Personally, I think they look fucking stupid. The seraph joins the hymns coming from the church, and slowly, I see everyone inside begin to ascend on beams of light that seem to come from everywhere and nowhere at once. It only takes a few seconds, and the seraph moves on. The church is silent now. I wait a few seconds to make sure that flying fucker isn't coming back. Then I jam on the gas. I can't believe it, but Mark didn't even wake up. A left and a right, and suddenly, bam, it's the old shitty neighborhood and the old shitty memories. Streets are just like when we left them, with a bit more wear and tear from all the panic. Plus piles of clothes and the gutters from all the people who got zapped right out of them. I realize I'm counting down the street numbers. I smack Mark. Fuck if I gotta do this alone. He comes to with a start, grabbing for a shiv he doesn't have. I wave in his face. Almost there, I say. I gotta mentally stop myself from grinding my teeth. The car eases up against the curb in front of the bungalow. I tug the parking brake. Mark is wide awake now. Neither of us is saying anything. I know this feeling. We're just pretending like we aren't here. Both of us ignoring the house and staring at Mom's big-ass cement bird bath eyesore that I wrenched my back and stalling. No birds sitting in it, of course. We're well past birds. Just one of those harmless, fat baby angels that takes off startled when the engine backfires. That fucking house. Those fucking people. But maybe, uh, just maybe. I—I I mean, perspective, angels and shit. They could change. And that's when the first candlestick flies to the front window, glass spraying like a confetti cannon after a touchdown. Mark and I instinctively duck down. Now that the glass is gone, I can hear Mom and Dad. Their screaming comes in overlapping waves. I'm catching snippets flinching at each one like it's a direct hit. Nice aim, Ed Case! Fuck you! And things of that nature. Mark is looking at me, and... Fuck, man, he's got the little brother eyes. Same eyes as 25 years ago when he broke his kneecap falling off his bike and I was the only one there. Just like then, I got no idea what to do. But from the vibes radiating off the house, I know they're probably just getting started. In the rearview mirror, I can see the Archangel Michael, 300 cubits tall, descending on what looks like Detroit to liberate the righteous. Through the shattered window, Dad is yelling about Mom overcooking the fish. The same shit again and again even now i look at mark fuck this i say let's get a coffee we got some catching up to do he nods and i pull away from the curb wondering where the hell am i gonna get a coffee not that i'm worrying about the small stuff like that anymore angels and shit perspective you know The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Visit today at patreon.com slash the wrong station. This holiday episode was written by Jacob Duarte Spiel and Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Skylar Thomas Cohen, Theodora the Explorer, Ursula Fatzi, Michael Wisman, Lisa Taylor, Bojimbo, Laura Elliott, Heather, Haley, Eflaten Solmaz, Outlast Chance, Andre Duquette, Astrid, Christ Munch, Alan Chalfant, and Bean Planter for helping us keep the lights well off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Alon Citrum, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is you tune into the show. Happy holidays, a happy new year, and until next time, you for listening.